0: We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders. And you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders. And that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership. It's also the best way to get access to our master classes and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Today's guest is Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony is the founder and managing partner of SkyBridge. Welcome to the podcast, Anthony.
1: You're you're leaving out that I got fired from the White House, Jono, because you're a good soul? Is that why you're leaving that out?
0: <laughs> yes, as we just talked about before recording. Yeah. Yeah, I'm that's not saying okay. uh, you, you can bring that up too. I mean, I
1: mean, if anybody knows me in Australia, it's probably me getting my ass fired five years ago uh, by Donald <laughs> Trump after eleven days. Um, all the other stuff is <laughs> insignificant. You know, there's a there's one of the best American baseball players uh, by the name of Carlos Beltran. The only thing the Mets fans can remember is that he took a called third strike. In the sixth game of the National League Championship, everything else about his career doesn't matter. You follow what I'm saying? But, and that, and, yeah, that, and that's too. how life goes, you know. So it's just it's just one of those funny things. Uh, but I appreciate you inviting me on. I'm ha- happy to answer any and all questions.
0: Yeah, well, you're. Ob- I love. Um, y- <laughs> You are, uh, I can already see your passion for uh, communication right there in knowing that if we mention that up front, people are going to be going, okay, if I, if they haven't heard of you, they're going to be listening to this episode. So um, I'm, I'm already loving it. But I want I to jump straight in um, and we can mention a bit about Skybridge later on, but I really want to ask about you and your life and I want to start at the beginning. If we go back to your childhood, What are some of the moments from that time in your life or even themes that really shaped you into the person and the leader you are today? Well, you know, I mean,
1: when I was younger, I was probably less comfortable about talking about my early life. I think what ends up happening is as you get older um, and you're more a little bit, a touch more reflective, I think you can be more honest with yourself about things. You know, my parents are... Roman Catholic. They're Italian-American. The families uh, both immigrated, both sides of the family immigrated from Italy, and uh, they were born in the 1930s. So my father's 87. My mother is 85. Um, They got married in 1957. Okay, so they've they've been married for 65 years. Giano They've put four hundred years of fighting into a sixty five year marriage. I mean, you've never seen anything like this, but they <laughs> they won't get themselves divorced because of the Roman Catholicism. You see what I'm saying?, uh, so they got married at twenty one yes. they got married at twenty one and nineteen respectively. I was born in nineteen sixty four, seven years after their their marriage uh, began. Uh, It was a very difficult domestic uh, family situation. You know, my older brother has cycled in and out of uh, drug addiction over the last 40 years. Um, I myself, I think I tried to, you know, when I read President Clinton's book, uh, it resonated with me because his father died of alcoholism. He was killed drunk driving. Uh, A couple of months before he was born. So he was supposed to be William Jefferson Blythe. Uh, The mother remarried and he took the name William Jefferson Clinton from Roger Clinton, uh, his mother's uh, second husband. Uh, But President Clinton's mother was a gambling addict, his second father was an alcoholic, and so he tried to launder his life by going into public service and getting himself a Rhodes Scholarship and going to Yale. Um, I sort of realized at age 11 that my parents were going to run out of money. There was no way my dad, as an hourly worker with his habits, was going to end up financially capable of affording his retirement or my mom's retirement. So the anxiety for me started at like age 10 or 11. And I immediately got myself a uh, newspaper route. Uh, and then I worked as a stock boy. In a food store, so I don't know what the equivalent would be in Australia, but it was a small supermarket in the local town. Uh, I actually worked for—I actually worked for a guy named Lou uh, Campanelli. I'll never forget the man. He was one of the nicest, kindest people in my life, Uh, and I worked my ass off for him. Um, And so, my dad was a laborer; Uh, he was an hourly worker. My mother was a housewife. There was enough money to afford. You know our house, and you know live in a modest middle class neighborhood. Uh, that's when working wages in the U.S. were a lot better, a lot more successful. Uh, but it was not easy. It was not a easy um, situation, um, if you will. Um, so you're asking me the question. At, I sometimes sugarcoat the answer. Uh, but having done some research on you and your podcast, I think it's more beneficial for your listeners uh, to hear the truth. So uh, a couple seminal moments for me. I start I start work at 11. I've got a paper route. I'm working as a stock boy. I'm 16, and a drunken uh, drunk, uh, truck driver, this has got to be 1980 now, uh, backs up into the loading bay. Uh, he's got uh, Coca-Cola glass bottles on the truck. They all come out of the truck. I can tell you the exact date, actually, because I remember it vividly. It was it was June 30th, 1980, and Mr. Campanelli called me to the front desk and he said, "Hey, uh, you got to go outside and you got to clean up these coke bottles." And I went out there. Uh, I had my apron on and I had a broom and I was sh- I was I was cleaning these coke bottles, and I was getting my ass stung by the bees that were swarming around the sugar coming out of the broken glass bottles. (laughs) And so there I was cutting my hands and fingers and bees were crawling up my trousers, stinging my legs. And I remember saying to myself, I gotta figure this out. I gotta end up in a job that is a white collar job, as opposed to every single one of my family members who's worked with their hands, who's worked outdoors, have been involved with some level of direct sunlight And heavy lifting. And I remember thinking, I was in the 10th grade, I don't know what that equivalent is in Australia, but it was my second year of high school. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I have to figure this out. And um, I was hell bent on doing that. And so I had a couple of choices for college, I could have gone to the state school, or I got into a private college that was way more expensive than the state school that was providing a subsidy for state residents. And so that first strategic decision was to was to go to that school. I went to Tufts University. It was a private college on the outskirts of Boston. And I went there because I thought, okay, that's, gonna, that's a better reputation, way more expensive. But hopefully that would help me get into a good professional school. So that once I was in a quote-unquote professional school, i.e. being a doctor or something like that or a lawyer, I opted for law because I wasn't as good in the uh, math and chemistry and so forth. Um, that was going to be my ticket to some level of financial stability and independence. So I don't know. I probably answered it more long-winded than you wanted, but it was, a, it was not an easy way to grow up. Uh, there, no question about that. When you are in families like that uh, and mm. families, you know, my dad grew up in a coal mining area, no, no hot water in his house uh, in the 1930s wow. and 40s. Yeah. Uh, they had a propane tank. they would heat the hot water and pour it into a bathtub. Uh, they would wash the clothes that way too. Um, you know, you grow up hard uh, sometimes if you grow up with a hard life, you become hardened and some of that happened in my family. so it was it was really important to me to see if I could break that cycle. and so um, but you know when you're going to do that, you end up taking enormous risks. And I've landed on my face a few times. You know, I was fired from Goldman Sachs. I got fired from the White House. I've had a few setbacks in my career in terms of uh, fund management. Um, I got mm-hmm. I got a lot of things wrong in 1998. Thank, thankfully, I was able to correct those things uh, uh, and have my performance return. Um, but, you know, truth be told, you're not going from the neighborhood that I grew up in where very few people were reading or there were, there were no books in the house that I grew up in never hit a golf yeah. ball, never swung a tennis racket you know mm. you're not going from that sort of a neighborhood without taking an outsized risk and then of course when you take outsized risks you get beat up once in a while too
0: yeah I, I so appreciate you sharing that because I think um <clears throat> you know i i I love chatting with leaders for you know and, and some leaders, some people, they talk about idyllic childhood and how that helped them in some way to become who they are. But it's, it's just as valid to hear your story. And, and the question that's in my mind for you is um, there is like two sides of the one coin. So if I can give you two questions in one, I'm keen to know what did you learn from that upbringing that you just described and you know, shared really vulnerably around that has helped you become who you are? Like, what lessons did you learn that you think, I probably wouldn't have been able to achieve that if I didn't have that grocery store experience where I went, no matter what it takes, I've got to get out of here and do something different. But I'm also interested, and this is the second question, if it's not too confusing, what what were the downsides of that? Or the, you know, someone, someone um, shared it with me as balconies and basements, you know, the balconies is like the upside of that. And then there's the basement. And how have you dealt with those? from coming out of your upbringing to, to doing some really, in, in my opinion, some really remarkable things. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, so the first thing, you know, I'll say three things, try to make my answers a little bit briefer so I don't bore you. I mean, first thing I would say is, um, I say three things. Number one, there is no victimization or self-pity. I think that is the worst human emotion. And so I don't like, uh, people say, well, I grew up with a rough neighborhood, so therefore my life's gone poorly and I want to blame others. Okay. So, you know, never do that. You're personally accountable for your life and for the destiny that you have. Okay. And you can change your mindset and attitude to make that happen. Number two, I'm known to be profane, right? I got fired from the white house because of what I said about Steve Bannon, who I think is one of the more malevolent people in our civilization. And, uh, If anything, one of my proudest accomplishments, frankly, is that I helped Steve Bannon get fired from that White House. Uh, Imagine the travesty of him and Donald Trump working together in the White House during a global pandemic. That would have been catastrophic for the world. Um, But I would say uh, I'm known as a profane person, but the two worst words in the language are should and ought. And if my children say to me, well, I should have had this happen or this ought to have happened, I'm like, okay, well, you better drop that right now because life is unfair. And given the nature of life and its unfairness, uh, on the scale of life, you've won the jackpot. Uh, You live in the United States. You're growing up in a relatively affluent family of people that love you. And there's some level of functionality around you. So you should be not using the words should and ought. So number one, no self-pity. Number two, no shoulds or oughts. I think those are normative things that we shouldn't be talking about. We should be living in the world the way it is and reacting to that world that way. And then the third thing is about balconies and basements. If you find yourself in the basement, get up. Okay, You've got to be a resilient person. You've got to accept that life is going to go up and down. If you're idealizing your life and you're thinking your life is going to go up on a straight line or on a 45-degree angle with no curves or waves or divots, um, you're not living on the planet I'm living on. And so if you set your expectations low, um, you then have an ability to deal with anything that's coming your way. You know, and, you know, listen, I, I mentioned two firings that I've had. They were traumatic moments for me. They were very stressful. Uh, but I, I wasn't a health issue, thank God. You know, and I have friends of mine, unfortunately, that have had untimely deaths. Uh, that's way more serious yeah. than anything I've ever gone through. So, so set your expectations appropriately is, I think, the big lessons that I've learned from all that. You know, and you know, the basement, you're not as bad as you look when you're in that basement, Jono. Uh, but you're certainly not as good as you look when you're standing on the balcony. <laughs>
0: That's so good. I I I think it might have been John Maxwell who says, um, you know, when you start out doing something, people will severely underestimate you, but then the more and more success you get over time, people people will then overestimate how good you are, and uh, and I think it's it's like what you've just said is a version of that. It's like when, and and I think it's a cultural thing as well. When people when people you know hop on and really jump on to to pulling someone down i've definitely been aware looking at some some people where that's happened going you know what they're they're not as bad as everyone's making out like they did they probably made a mistake um sometimes people you know who do really evil things you think well yeah you probably you know this is actually like um legitimately um about as bad as it can get um but there's a lot of people where you're 100% right when they're on the balcony i think um, everyone thinks they're better than they are and then when we all decide or we see them in the basement that go through something hard i think we all assume they're much worse than they are and i think it's life's um, often a lot more gray than that
1: yeah and i and i and i think i think it's uh, i think that's i think that's a really insightful statement i guess what i would just add to it Um, And again, I don't want to just add for the sake of adding, but I just think this is important that you have to develop that statement into a habit. You have to develop that statement into a mindset. You have to develop that statement into a discipline. So when you're getting up, uh, you know, today has been a good day for me. It's not over yet. I'm psyched about that. And I'm hoping that God will give me the opportunity to wake up tomorrow morning, and tomorrow will be another good day. Why? Uh, because I'll be above ground and I'll be breathing. Okay, until until I'm not. And the point <laughs> being is that's a good day, and you gotta you gotta have that mindset. So I'm fired. I'll set the scene for you. I'm fired at nine twenty-seven on the thirty-first of July, and I'll tell your listeners if you think you're having a bad day, I want you to imagine this. Um, I said something about Bannon to a friend, somebody I knew 20 years. Uh, His father knew my dad for 50 years, and I said an off-the-cuff, garrulous remark. I used some profanity. I thought it was funny. He was recording me without me knowing, and he ran to CNN with the recording. When it was played on on CNN, it embarrassed the White House and the president, and deservedly so, I got fired. Uh, So number one, I never blamed anybody but myself. I technically needed to have told this person that I knew for 20 years that I was off the record. I didn't do that. Uh, And so that profanity that I used put me in the spotlight. I got fired. Um, When I got fired, I own the firing, but I want to set the scene for you. I'm now fired at 920 in the morning. I'm asked to pack up my bags. I'm escorted out of the east wing of the White House. And I'm walking on Pennsylvania (laughs) Avenue down to my uh, hotel room where I'm going to pack up and move back to New York. Yeah. And and at 2 o'clock, the announcement of my firing takes place. And I am getting lit up and chewed by every cable news organization in the U.S., perhaps globally, but I wasn't aware of that. I'm getting lit up in all of the newspapers. I'm getting lit up in memes on social media. Twitter, Facebook, etc. I'm being excoriated on all the late night comedy shows and I'm sitting there 24 hours later and I'm saying to myself, wow, okay, this is pretty tough. This is not an easy thing. Um, H.R. McMaster, who was the national security advisor at the White House, I had a good relationship with H.R., I had been on troop support missions to Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, and I was a member of the business executives for national security, which I've returned to. And when he saw me in the White House and he he learned about my announcement, he was very excited. He said, Anthony, let's have a welcome to the West Wing party for you. Um, And I said, okay, that's great. I have a beautiful place at Fort McNair. I'm still a general that overlooks the Jefferson Memorial. We'll cook some steaks and burgers. And we'll invite some of our friends from the west wing over to my house i said okay that's great when do you want to do that he said august 1st well John i got fired on july 31st <laughs> and so now i'm walking out of the white house being fired hr looks at me and says jesus christ what am i going to do with the beer and the food that i bought for this party and i said to him <laughs> well you know we were going to have a welcome to the west wing party why don't we have a farewell from the West Wing party? And so that <laughs> night I waited in Washington an extra day and I went to his house and I celebrated my departure from the White House with a lot of my friends there. Okay. And, and, and I'm telling you right now, as I have told my children, I have five of them. Uh, that's how you handle yourself when stuff is going poorly. And then, you know, I got up and went back to work and shook it off. Uh, but as Trump obviously acted more and more maniacal, it became impossible to support him. So uh, sometime in 2019, I said, hey, I'm sorry, I can no longer support this. I have to work against this guy because he's a danger to the country and the democracy.
0: What an incredible story. Uh, that is, I don't even even have any words. I, I think I love how you, you, how did you put it? You, you're sitting there. You've got, you've got basically every media that could ever light up all going off. Memes are being made and you think, gee, this isn't, this isn't good. This is hard. (laughs) He said it something like that. And I thought that is an understatement. Yeah, here, here, I'll
1: I'll tell you, do you have children? Do you have children?
0: Yes. Yes. Just one little boy is five months old.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, congratulations. That's wonderful. Uh, My little boy uh, was five months old in 1992, and he was 25 years old in 2017, and he was walking with me on the promenade in Santa Monica, California, Uh, and this was about a week after my firing. I was out in uh, California with him, and he put his arm around me, and he said, hey, Dad, This is really bad. Are are you going to be okay? And it was the first time in my life where I was actually being parented by my child um, with concern. And I looked at him. I said, AJ, AJ, not only am I going to be okay, watch what I do with this. Okay. And by the way, given the way I grew up, the nature of the hostility and violence, uh, physical, domestic violence in the house that I grew up in uh this is a minor thing in comparison to be candid i then went on the stephen colbert show he's the late night comedian on the cbs network uh um, a lot of pr people said do not do that hide in the shadows bury your head in the sand do not do that i said okay that's absolutely the wrong thing to do i'm going to confront this head-on i went on the show i owned my mistake colbert turned to me and said hey Did you think you were going to last a long time in the White House? I looked at him. I said, hey, I thought I was going to last longer than a carton of milk in the refrigerator. I thought I was going to get blown out before the milk spoiled. (laughs) The point point being, I own the mistake, and I'm able to use my self-sense of awareness and my sense of humor, okay, to move on. You know, somebody says to me, oh, you know, you were 10 Mm. days in the White House. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a second. I was 11 days in the White House. Don't chip me out of that last day, okay? My my point is that you've got you got to roll with things in life. You can't allow life to roll you. Um, and this is something I would share because this is also about leadership. You have mm. to forgive yourself. You can't. I don't mm. wake up in the morning and kick myself in the pants and say, "Geez, I I got fired from the White House." I did something really stupid, Deserve to be fired. Let me kick myself in the pants this morning. I get up in the morning and whatever the millstone of regret is from the day ago, a year ago, five years ago, I take that millstone of regret off of my neck. I put it down and I leave it behind me to start the day fresh today and work again tomorrow. Um, And I think if you do that, um, you can, you can have a positive attitude about a lot of things. Again, health things are different. I have a friend of mine right now, unfortunately struggling. He's my age. He has, uh, he has an astrocytoma. He has a brain tumor. He's got children and a wife and he's having a hard time and he's doing an amazing job. He is a true leader in terms of the way he's handling himself, uh, with his illness, but that's a serious illness. And that's a serious matter. He's got to get his affairs in order and he's got to, work with his kids. But in the immortal words of the American comedian Mel Brooks, relax, relax, Jono, none of us are getting out of here alive. Uh, and when you stop and you think <laughs> about it from that perspective, you know, you, yeah. you, you can get your frame of mind around, I'm here visiting, let me enjoy the ride. Uh, flip side is, you know, I could have mm. never gone from that neighborhood uh, to where I am today without taking those risks. And I, I could have stayed at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, I had a great career there i left goldman sachs 26 years ago i could have stayed there um i would have probably been richer or maybe as rich but i would have probably died of boredom you know i would have been forced into <laughs> a box box of conformity i would have had to shave the points the fine points on my elbows off uh smoothed out my sharp elbows and you know would i have been able to work in the white house I just went on the uh, British television show, SAS, He Who Dares Wins. I don't know if you've heard of that show or if it's available in Australia. But I I participated participated in a 14-day survival course in the Jordanian Desert with the uh, SAS and the Navy SEALs. Am I doing that if I stayed at Goldman Sachs? Am I working (laughs) in the White House, flying in Air Force One? Am I going to write the books that I've been capable of writing? Is John o. White, is he gonna invite me on his podcast? Or or am I gonna be just another cookie cutter, investment banker or financier? I don't I didn't want that for my life. And so therefore mm. I have to accept the, as you say, the balconies and basements or the trials and tribulations, whatever they may be. Okay, but here here's something I will say to you, because your podcast is about leadership. For me, when I think about leadership, it's role modeling. And it's collaboration. Ultimately, if we're successful, I'm bringing everybody along with me. You know, no one's ever worked for me. People have worked with me. There's a very, very big distinction in my small company. And when mm. people feel that, when they feel that, they take a sense of ownership and pride in what they're doing. It becomes a mission as opposed to a job, uh, and they stay. You know, my chief in- administrative officer. I met her 31 years ago, she's still with me. My driver, because uh, I live outside of the city and I've got to commute in, and so I've hired somebody to drive me. Uh, he just retired after 26 years. Uh, worked for me uh, from 1996 to today, he just turned 65, and he put in for his retirement. God God blessed him uh, for doing that. Um, you know, He's obviously entitled to do that. Um, you know, But he's still sort of with me uh, in retirement. Um, I have my head of sales, 17 years. My CFO, 21 years. My general counsel, 20 years. Um, And this is a small company. And these people are with me. And frankly, they're with me for a reason because they enjoy their job. But they also feel like they are in the game collaboratively. They own and are responsible for what they're doing. As opposed to working at a job. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's so good. I mean, those numbers speak for themselves. Um, that's remarkable retention, and I think it's clear chatting with you as well that um, you obviously, you know, you say you say what you think. You own own your mistakes, and I think people, you know, it's that it's that same people don't leave companies. Um, People don't leave jobs, they leave people. People don't leave jobs, they leave bosses. And I think if you if you can really invest in people and you can really build that trust, I imagine there'd be a lot of trust because um, you not only because of the time you've worked together, but it sounds like I can imagine as a boss, you'd be direct. People would know where they stand with you, which I think is underrated as a, um, like that creates that psychological safety to go, well, if Anthony's not happy, he'll tell me.
1: Yeah, there's no question, and 100, I will, you know, and I and I and I do, um, but I don't tell them in a dictatorial way. I tell them, hey, you know, come on, you can do better than this. And by the way, mm. when I'm doing something wrong or I'm off key, I can come out of a meeting, and one of my colleagues will say, well, how'd you do in the meeting? I said, ah, you know, I sort of underperformed. I wish I had done better. I wasn't at my best, you know. And mm. I and I and I think yeah. I think that level of self-assessment we cloak ourselves a lot because of our self-consciousness we want to go into denial about certain weaknesses or flaws i'd rather own them i think it's a sign of security look at the overcompensation and the hypermasculinity of a guy like donald trump you know that that you're 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 hiding massive deficits and massive insecurity when you act like that i don't think you need to act like that and i think and that's far from calming if you want to run an organization and you want to have a good executive management skills, uh, you've got to be able yep. to delegate, but then you also have to be accountable. You know, Jack, Jack Kennedy um, took over the Bay of Pigs invasion. He got it from uh, Dulles, Alan Dulles, the CIA director under Eisenhower and Eisenhower himself, and he went through with the invasion, Okay, which was planned and executed in April of 1961. And the invasion was an abysmal disaster. And just for to remind everybody, U.S. didn't use any troops or air support, but we trained Cuban exiles to go back and take over the island for, from Fidel Castro, and they lost. And Jack Kennedy went to the podium and said that victory has a thousand fathers but defeat is an orphan. But I stand before you as the executive officer of this government. And I am the responsible agent for these decisions. He didn't blame Alan Dulles. He didn't blame Eisenhower. He didn't blame anybody but himself. Uh, the very next day, the Gallup uh, polling organization polled and he, his approval rating went up 15 points. He had a 73% approval rating and he turned to his brother. He said, my God, he said, uh, I, I should have disasters like this once a week. The the, the point being that he owned <laughs> the mistake and he was accountable. And the American people respected that. And I think that's leadership. That's leadership. You've got to own your mistakes. You've got to be comfortable in your own skin in terms of when you're dealing with people. And by the way, you know, my business is getting its ass kicked right now. We're in a bear market. This is probably... Uh, mm. One of the worst times for my business is 2008. I'm not sugarcoating that. I'm telling people straight up, yeah, no, we're having a rough time, you know. And, uh, and by the way, here's why we're having a rough time. However, we're long-term investors. Here's our investment mandate. This is why I think mm-hmm. we're going to be fine. Uh, but, you know, people have a tendency to be short-term. Everybody's a long-term investor, John O. until they have short-term losses. When they have short-term losses, they <laughs> set their hair on fire. They run around in a circle. You know, I, <laughs> I, I try to calm them down, but you know, you have people that will leave you at the bottom. And then when you're doing well, they come back and buy you at the top. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah,
0: so hundred
1: percent, listen, you know, you know, I, I, I want a great experience for my people, but I can't mm. give that to them. Okay. I can try to give that to them. But I can tell you the vagaries of life, being what they are, some days are going to be way better than others, and that's got to be set into your expectations and your goals. You know, I've had setbacks in my uh, goals this year. Um, if you had asked me at the beginning of the year where I thought the business would be versus where it is right now, I would say, "Oh, wow! You know, we're we're in a hole compared to where I thought we were going to be." But I'm very optimistic about where we are. And I think from this moment, I think we're going to have a very good run. We'll have to see.
0: Yeah. It's it's refreshing. I really do like your approach. I I wanted to ask you something. You mentioned role modeling and I thought, um, oh, I'd love to ask you who, who have been some of the biggest role models in your life. Who are some of the people whether you've worked with them, whether they're friends, whether it's been a bit from afar, whether they've been mentors, the people Mm -hmm. who've had the biggest positive impact on Anthony's uh, leadership journey? Well, listen, you know,
1: whatever the weaknesses were of my parents, in many ways they are role models for me. You know, my dad was a very hard worker. Um, He was also somebody that lived by the rules. You know, my dad's attitude was – you made your money you paid your taxes and you live by the rules i don't know if you ever saw the bronx tale but i lived in an italian american neighborhood there were people in the neighborhood that were made guys and in the mafia my father was more like the de niro character where he was about you know the de niro character was a straight up straight-laced bus driver my dad was a straight-up straight-laced crane operator he came home um, and you know he had his cigarettes and his brandy or whatever he was drinking at the time um, and he got up at three o'clock in the morning. My mother put his lunch pail in the, in the refrigerator at 10 PM. He got home at three thirty in the afternoon. Obviously, if you weren't at the dinner table by five, he was beating your ass in, but he was a hard worker. Uh, I took that from him. He was also very honest. Uh, I, I think I've taken that from him. I, I can remember there was a day he went to pick up some, uh, was running errands on the main street in this town that I grew up in. And there was a traffic ticket on his, uh, windshield. And rather than go home and get his checkbook out and write the check, he made me and him walk up to the post office and he got a money order from the post office and mailed it immediately. He didn't like having debts. He didn't like owing anybody anything or being on the wrong side of things like that. I think I took that with me. Um, You know, I I would say that I had uh, mentors in college. I had high school coaches and teachers. Um, Nobody gets to where they are by themselves. You 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 need a full-on collaboration, and you need a band to help you get to where you are. Um, People, when people say, "Oh, well, you're self-made. You came from this blue-collar family, and you've reached the level of financial independence in the United States. You're living the American dream. You're self-made." I'm not self-made. Um, that's not the right word, I, I'm, I'm made uh, through a collaboration of many people that were willing to help me. Um, you know, John. Uh, ben Franklin once said, if you want a friend, ask the person for a favor. It's counterintuitive. Uh, but his point being is that human nature being what it is, the person will want to do the favor for you and show their good graces, at, a, at, at which point they'll feel good about it. And then there'll be the spirit of reciprocity that could potentially start a friendship. I can't tell you the number of times I took that aphorism from Ben Franklin and I used it in my life. I had to do that because I didn't have a network. I didn't have uh, family members that were on Wall Street or in executive positions around the country that could help me or could introduce me to people that could further my career. Uh, So I had to go to people and ask them for help Uh, and I had to do it in a, you know, pay very forward solicitous sort of a way and by the way i also had to demonstrate to people that i was willing to help them and even today i try to pay it forward i can't tell you the number of emails i respond to from people i don't know who they are they're asking me for help or asking me uh, for a copy of my book or something like that and i try to get to as many people as
0: possible and try to
1: respond to as many people as i can
0: yeah, that's, um, that's awesome. And, and I think, you know, the fact that you're on my podcast is an example uh, from both ends of what you've just explained. Like, I really appreciate you being generous with your time. I know that you have a lot on your plate <laughs> um, as an understatement. And so I know that it's generous. And at the same time, I think um, this is so important for leaders who are listening, who want to um, expand their own networks or, or they feel like they're hitting a ceiling. Um, because I, th- I think one of the reasons I love this podcast is because it does allow me to position myself to go to someone like you and say, Hey, Anthony, can I ask a favor? Can you can you come on and, and chat about your story and, and give some advice? And it's it's amazing. I think um, the Ben Franklin quote is so true. There's something that when someone asks us for a favor, it it's uh, it's endearing.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and people, and people respond, you know, here, here's one, here's one, one other thing I, I'll say. And I think, I think you'll get this. Uh, and I think it's important for your listeners to think like this as well. Um, you don't know where the karma is going to return to you. Uh, and I'm going to tell you this uh, quick story. I used to go to the Harvard club in New York, why did I go, and I'm still a member there, but why did I go there? Well, when I was a young man, uh, I was trying to build myself up. I thought it was a good place to meet people. And he sat breakfast with clients and so forth at the Harvard Club. You know, I guess I was trying to be impressive to do that. But also the breakfast is pretty good. Well, there was a there was a waiter there. Um, and his name is Joaquin. And he served me for probably two years straight. And I always made sure that he was tipped well. And I made sure that he was taken care of. Well, one day... I am walking out of the Harvard club and he's walking over to me. He says, Hey, Mr. Anthony, I, I need some help on something. Would you be willing to help me? And I said, sure. Uh, I guess his son was in a car accident. It was a personal injury case. Uh, he had won a $35 million settlement. Okay, so That was about 20 years ago. So that's, you know, almost double today. Say like a 50 to $60 million, uh, 2022 dollar settlement. I said, wait, what? You you just came into $35 U.S. dollars? Yes, I have. I don't know who to go to with this. Would you be willing to manage this money for me? Okay? Now, I don't know. <laughs> is he the guy that I think is going to end up being the $35 million person of all the people at the Harvard Club? Now, truth be told, I wasn't equipped to manage that money. He needed somebody... Because I'm a hedge fund manager, I could manage a portion of that money, but I really couldn't manage the money. But I got him to a group of people uh, that helped him manage that money. And uh, you know, and his family went on to have a lot, a lot of financial security and so on and so forth. And I had done a favor for somebody um, who's returned that favor to me in a lot of different ways in my business. My point being is you don't know where the good grace is, or you don't know where the karma of reversion is going to come from, you know, and if you're good to everybody, you're going to increase the odds of your success by quantums.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's, uh, you know, from the smallest thing, from a smile just to taking that extra time, no matter what someone's role is to really make sure they feel uh, known, particularly when it's someone who's in a role where they're serving you, uh, I love that story because of that though that's um, what a wonderful uh, example of ending up having this amazing um, uh, connection and, and bring so much value to you when you would have never assumed that but you were you were just kind um, and it and it's um, yeah and I think as a rule it's it's the right thing to do but it also pays off and um, I would love to invite you back for a, we already mentioned this before, but I, I just have enjoyed this so much. I'm watching the clock and I've already gone 10 minutes over, but it's um, it's just so much fun chatting about your story and about leadership with you. So the invitation to do a part two down the track at some point is uh, is there for you um, if, uh, if you're interested at some point down the track. Um, but I sure. want to finish with some leadership express questions today. Yeah, that'd be great. We can we can sure. do that down the track because it's been so much fun. Um, the first question is about a book. Is there a book that you've gifted to other people, or that you find yourself recommending a lot to other people?
1: Well, I wish I wish it was just one. You know, I'm trying to think of like one seminal book, um, but I would say uh, an old book which I think is worth reading uh, was written by a, a psychologist, psychiatrist from the University of Pennsylvania. His name is Martin Seligman, and it was called Learned Optimism. I like giving that to young people, particularly people that grow up in blue-collar neighborhoods, blue-collar areas. You, you, you know, people sometimes have a tendency to—you grew up in a hard neighborhood or a hard area. You think you're not going to get a break. You have a tendency to sometimes to be pessimistic. Lots of my family members are, frankly, quite pessimistic, and uh, this book teaches you how to break out of that and how to create optimism and and learn how to be optimistic. And so I recommend that book. I think that's the one book of many that I would recommend to somebody.
0: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, what about a favorite question when you are with some key stakeholders, when you're with your team in a one-on-one meeting with one of your team or, or sitting down with a prospective um, investor? uh are there any questions that you think, oh, yeah, I probably do ask that question a lot?
1: Well, it's funny that you say that because the, the, the first question that comes to mind is what you just asked me because I'm a reader. I
0: always ask people what they're reading. What are you reading, John? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I, let me actually, <laughs> let me look in my, I'm, I'm a listener, so I'm in, um, in audible right now i'm reading a couple of darren hardy books compound effect mm-hmm. the sure. entrepreneur roller coaster which yeah. um has been a real great the entrepreneur roller coaster has been amazing because i didn't expect it mm-hmm. to be as good but a friend of mine really insisted that i read it and then i'm, I'm reading um uh, a game of thrones uh the 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 series as well okay, for good. um enjoyment so yeah no it's, okay, i good. think that's a cracker of a question
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you asked it to me, but I think that's really is the question I always ask people, you know, and it gets them started. Yeah. So you get to learn a little bit about what their tastes are too, when you ask that question.
0: Absolutely. What's a great piece of advice you've received in life or leadership?
1: Well, I mean, the number one thing that comes to mind for me is accountability. And I can't tell you whether it's a coach, a business leader, a mentor, Uh, a client, uh, accountability, I think accountability, um, you can, you can galvanize a lot of people around you if you're willing to be accountable, because what ends up happening is if, uh, if mistakes are being made at Skybridge and I'm accountable for them, I'm providing a shield for a lot of people inside the firm. And they're, they're like, Hey, wow, this guy's protecting me when things are going badly. I'm really going to go to bat for him. I'm going to go the extra mile. So I would say accountability.
0: So good, I love it. Um, what about uh, any any thoughts on? Oh, let me ask you this one: What's a big problem or challenge leaders are facing in? If if I make it a bit more general, the financial sector.
1: Well, you know, it's the financial s- sector is sometimes when it's doing well is considered to be a growth area of uh, you know people see it as a growth area but i see it more cyclical you know and so i guess the challenge is to try to get people out of the steady mindset and to recognize that it's more cyclical you know as an example from 1900 to 2022 120 years stock market is down one out of every five years. You know, we've we've had 20% of those years be bear markets or where the performance has been poor. Yet, if you look at the stock chart from 1900 to 2022, if you were brave enough to just hold on, you did very, very well. And so I think that's the challenge. You know, I always tell clients that the best performing accounts at Charles Schwab, which is one of the largest uh, brokerage companies in the US, the best performing accounts... Are the dead people, Jono. Uh, you know why? Because dead people are not that emotional about the stock price movement. You know, and so so the point being is that like you got to just stay in there and be unemotional. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh,
0: <that's, laughs> that wasn't what I was expecting. I love it. That's so good. Um, it's uh, there's there's a good yeah, um, uh, th- th- yeah. There's a good hook or a good. Um, something about about investing in there, about um, we need to invest more like dead people um, that is actually really profound. Um, so that, yeah, that's a great... St- I love that, <laughs> that you share that with people. Uh, I've got to throw one in there for fun. Now that you can pick something lighthearted or maybe it's something really serious, um, a movie or a TV show that is a favourite of yours or really had a big impact on you.
1: So I would say... An older movie would be Braveheart. I love that movie um, because I'm uh, I'm a guy that likes to go against the establishment, so I like that movie. I would say a TV miniseries that I loved a long time ago was Winds of War uh, uh, by Herman Wolk. It was a multiple-part series about the war, World War II, and the struggle uh, for the West against uh, the fascists. That was a great movie. Uh, movie slash miniseries you mentioned game of thrones i think i saw every episode of game of thrones i love that i thought that was really really well done um i i i've watched the dystopia westworld and i've enjoyed that um you know that's something that's like sort of sort of current um but i'll tell you what though in the last five or ten years movies and and television shows have gotten way better you know if you would said to me Mm. you know my favorite movie, I'd probably say *The Godfather* for so many different reasons, because it's a story about American <laughs> capitalism and also Italian yeah. immigration to the country. If you if you said a TV show, *The Sopranos*, I thought was very well done. Uh, a lot of my Italian American friends don't like those movies because they think they put Italians in a bad light, where you know people think that we're all in the mafia and things like that. My father would probably say that, you know, he he doesn't like the way Italians are caricatured in Hollywood. Um, but I don't mind it. I'm a, I'm a free speech believer. And, uh, you know, I think that also got me in trouble with Donald Trump. I wrote an essay about free speech. And I think I have standing to talk about it because I've been ridiculed in the press, castigated in the press. Uh, but to have a free society, you need free speech and you need the press to be on top of and holding our political leaders accountable but then the other thing the press does is we teach our young people that they can think and speak freely. They go on and create Facebook, you know, or they go on and create Apple computer. They, if you're censoring people, um, you have a tendency to crimp their intellectual bandwidth. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you see all this intellectual property theft coming out of places like China or autocratic nations that suppress free speech. So, so for me, If they're going after Italians in Hollywood, no big deal. I can live with it.
0: (laughs) Oh, there's so many good um, uh, recommendations there. Last question. If you could only give one piece of leadership advice to a young leader, what would you say to them?
1: So we're back on the reading. You know, I would say you have to read. You have to read. You have to read not only fiction and nonfiction and. Books about leadership, or books about business, or books about business leaders, or biographies of political leaders or entrepreneurs, but you have to read because in in the process of reading, that is where you will pick up the most uh, experience in the most condensed way. Unfortunately, you're only living one life, uh, but I want you to think about this: over five thousand years of recorded history, there's some brilliant people that have lived, and you get a chance. Mm to have a one-way conversation with those people through books. And I would, I would implore people to do that.
0: Well said. Wonderful, wonderful piece of advice to land on. Uh, for those who've really enjoyed today and want to follow you online, um, or connect with you, how can people do that, Anthony? So I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm
1: primarily on Twitter. I'm at Scaramucci on Twitter, just my last name. Um, yeah, you can follow me there. I have a podcast called Mooch FM, which I do weekly, which has got a pretty good following. Um, you know, people can listen to that as well if they have an interest.
0: Wonderful. Well, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Uh, you can see from the timestamp just how long it's gone because I just have enjoyed it so much. Um, uh, don't, um, don't forget, I also have the uh, john o white leadership podcast and the leadership question of the day podcast so go and check those out but i want to finish today by saying a massive thank you uh to you anthony for being so generous with your time and for for being such a great storyteller and owning and and just sharing about your mistakes i think a lot of leaders are going to feel very encouraged from hearing you talk because yeah it's been really refreshing and most of all i've really enjoyed spending time with you so thanks for coming on the podcast
1: Appreciate it. Been a real honor for me, and I hope I get a chance to uh, do it again soon.
0: or clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict.